Good morning again. Whether you're uh, in the room or whether you're online, we'd like to welcome you and uh, I admire you for taking time in your week. There are so many demands upon you and, and to do this, what other place does this ever happen in the United States except, you know, in worship, we come together not to be entertained but to be taught and to think about things uh, that influence our attitude towards the world. So good on you for being here. Uh, let's pray that it would be time well spent. May the words of my mouth, Lord, the things I'm about to share, let them not be my thoughts, my opinions, my views, but rather let the words of my mouth be faithful to your thoughts, your concern for your people, because we know they have power. Uh, we know that they are uh, significant and important, and we know that they make a difference in life, Lord. Not my words, but your words. And may the thoughts of all the assembled hearts, whether they be near, whether they be far, whether they be today, or whether they be weeks from now, as somebody comes back and listens to this message, let the thoughts of those hearts, Lord, uh, allow their opinions and, and their desires to be set apart and, and just listen, to be open uh, to what you might say that would even challenge their perception and uh, accept as truth that which we know to be from a loving and kind and gracious Father who sent his only Son, Jesus, to be our Savior. So, Lord, let this be a meaningful time, we pray in Christ. Amen. Well, last week uh, I was not here. I'm partially retired. This isn't my only gig, and, and so uh, I have the opportunity to do some traveling, and Carol and I were out in Idaho, in Boise, Idaho, where our son uh, is a pastor of a church there, and so rather than worship with you, I didn't even live stream last week, we were uh, in worship in his church, and, and Idaho is a different kind of place. You can tell because this uh, Idaho sign is shot full of bullet holes in... in <laughs> In, in fact, some places they will even attach signs to the Welcome to Idaho uh, sign on the state line that says, Welcome to Idaho. This is not a gun-free zone. If that's what you want, go to California. And other places it will say, if you don't have a gun, just ask, we'll furnish one. You know, it's, 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 it's unlike any other place uh, except maybe Texas. It's very conservative. It's rough and tumble. It's unpretentious. It's rugged, it's active, it's independent. You know, it, it's kind of a mountain uh, mentality and culture. And, and it kind of feels good to me to be there because it's pretty raw and it's pretty uh, uh, real. And, and you'll see people outside and, and uh, everywhere you go, businessmen and in churches, you'll see people with hiking boots and, and they, uh, they mountain trail, bike ride, or hike, and it's just gorgeous. Uh, Boise, where we were, there's actually uh, the Boise River runs right through town in Boise, and it's an official white water park. You know, people bring rafts and canoes and kayaks right down through town, go right by the Boise University, and it's just a, a gorgeous place to visit. Uh, while we were there, Carol also celebrated a birthday, and so it was kind of fun to be with our family, our Boise family, and celebrate a birthday. Uh, it was a significant birthday, and so we had a special celebration. She finally admitted that she had turned 50, which was good because this son here just turned 40. So, uh, <laughs> so I think it was time to acknowledge that, you know, you were moving on in life, Carol. Good on you. And... Uh, we also uh, had opportunity to get outside, and, and you can see it's kind of chilly. In fact, you'd scrape your windows in the morning in Boise because you're in mountain air, and it could be pretty chilly in, uh, in the morning, early in the morning, be in the 30s even. 
But what was interesting is by the time you made the turn after nine holes, you'd be in shirt sleeves because the air is thin and it's high. And, and so when the sun comes up, it warms up immediately. So it was a good trip. Now, when we go to Boise, uh, near their home, uh, there is one of uh, several Boise Fry Company stores that we always take the family to. Because, you know, if you travel around the Midwest uh, at this time of year, you'll see people harvesting soybeans, you'll see people harvesting corn, and you'll see it strewn along the edge of the roads. If you go to the south right now, you'll see cotton. You know, you'll see cotton laying along the edge of the roads because they're harvesting cotton. If you go to Idaho, you'll see potatoes. You know, potatoes are laying on the side of the road. And the Boise Fry Company is all about potatoes. You go in and you order your favorite kind of potato, you know, a French fry or however you want it done. But there's like six or seven kinds. Burgers are like a side item in that store. You, know, you don't go to buy a hamburger, you go to buy French fries and then they serve you a burger if you want one. And uh, what's fun is across the street from the Boise Fry Company that we go to is a nostalgic candy store. And uh, we almost always walk across there, except this was right after Halloween, and the kids had like 20 pounds of candy, so we didn't, we didn't do it this time. But what's kind of interesting to me when you go over there is you see things that you don't see anymore. When was the last time you bought candy cigarettes for your kids? I mean, who would do that? I mean, we did that as kids in the 50s. You know, you saw kids, and they say, isn't that cute? They're learning how to smoke. You know? <laughs> <laughs> or bubblegum cigars, you know, things you just don't see anymore, or some candy bars that just aren't found anymore. I mean, people don't even know who Ruth was, Babe Ruth, but they had a Baby Ruth candy bar or a Zero. Have you ever eaten a Zero candy bar? You know, it's kind of a white candy bar. I haven't seen one of those in a while. The bun was actually made in Fort Wayne where I grew up, and the bun candy bars are there. Clark bars, Zag Nuts, Fifth Avenue. These are candy bars you typically don't see in your store anymore. And then there's bubble gum. I mean, we used to get bazooka gum or double bubble or chiclets. Every organization that I knew of passed out chiclets with their name and address and phone number on the back to advertise their insurance business or dentine. I, I imagine it's still out there, but I haven't seen it in a while. You know, all this nostalgia. And then there were other things as well, like cough drops. You know, we'd pretend to be sick because you'd want some Ludens or some Smith Brothers which had nothing to do with coughing. But man, if you had a box of those in school, you were the popular kid that day. And then there were just a few items that don't really fall into a category, like circus peanuts, I don't know, uh, you know, animal crackers. I don't even see lifesavers anymore. And when we went to the movie, we'd always get a slow poke. And this stuff was all achievable because we would go through the ditches and just collect, uh, you know, uh, used pop bottles and turn them in at the gas station. They finally made us wash them because they were so filthy. And, and it didn't take much to, to buy some of your favorite candy. Every time... I go over there, I'm reminded of the fleeting nature of things. The fleeting nature of things. Things come and things go. Things. Doesn't matter whether it's your favorite candy or, or your car. You know, I remember uh, we never had a paved driveway. We just had gravel in our driveway. And uh, I remember uh, some of my memories of my dad was always working on our cars because we always had old cars. And I remember him working on a Rambler that we had. Yeah, you know, I haven't seen a Rambler. I, don't, I haven't even heard the name in a long, long time. But Rambler was a, a big, inexpensive car for families back in the day. And it's interesting that George Romney was the head of the Rambler car company 
He made millions, became governor of Michigan, or, uh, Michigan, and Mitt, his son, then became a presidential candidate a few years later. Just interesting how things come and how things go. Whether it's candy, whether it's your car, whether it's your homes, whether it's your occupation, or whether it's your hobbies, these things come and they go. The culture is dynamic. It's constantly changing. But the impact... And the memories that using these things create, they last a lifetime. Things are only a means to a more important end. In fact, I I think that the lessons that we learn from how we handle things are the measure of their importance. In fact, I don't even think it's an exaggeration to say that's their only value. Things themselves have no value. It's what they mean to you. And it's the memories they create. And it's the opportunities that they present. Uh, I was working with George Ozani, a friend the other day. He was an uh, electrician. I probably shouldn't say that because you should not call him. But, uh, but he came over to help me with a couple of projects so that I wouldn't burn down my house. And um, while he was there, he said, uh, we were talking about some other things. And, and he said, I had a guy come up to me the other day. And he said, George, I'm going to give you a gift. But you have to promise to keep it the rest of your life. George says, well, before I make that decision, what is the gift? He says, just say you'll keep it the rest of your life. He goes, well, I don't know if I can say that. He goes, just say it. And so he says, okay, I'll keep it the rest of my life. And he handed him a timesheet from when George's father was an apprentice electrician. George's father's been gone a long time. And it was done in pencil. And George said, I'll treasure this the rest of my life. Now, it doesn't mean anything to anybody else. It's just a timesheet. But it's his father's timesheet when his father was just learning to be an electrician. And it meant something to him. The last time we moved, we were going through our our, uh, bedside uh, table lampstands. And uh, I have boxes full of stuff. And I'm kind of a hoarder. Carol's not so much. And uh, she, after I went through and said, okay, I'm going to save this stuff. Then she goes through and says, no, you're not, and throws about half of it out. But she came across this green plastic pocket knife, and she says, why are you keeping this thing? I carry a pocket knife all the time. She says, you have much nicer pocket knives than this. I said, because that pocket knife was in my father's pocket the day he died. You know, and it means something to me. I never carry it with me. I'm afraid of losing it. And uh, I don't even often handle it. But when I open that drawer, it's there. And it just causes me a memory. Things have no importance except the significance of things. Things are used by God to teach us important lessons about life. And one of the most important lessons about life, and it's not my opinion, it's based on this text that we're about to look at, one of the most important lessons you can learn about life is a lesson about generosity. And how you use things will indicate whether you're a generous person or not. We're going to be looking at Paul's advice to young Timothy in chapter 6, beginning at verse 17. Only three verses, but man, there are so, there's so much packed into these three verses that uh, we could preach an entire series just on these verses. Let's read it together. Uh, he says, command. Now, I want to apologize to you because uh, I'm not the pastor that you need. I'm not the pastor that you want, and I'm not probably the pastor that that God wants me to be either because I'm just going to urge. I'm just going to encourage. But God says I should actually command you. You know, this should be a hell, fire, and brimstone sermon, but I'm not prone to do that. But he actually tells me to command you, to tell you that this is not optional. Command those who are rich in this world. 
And I don't even want to talk about the fact that you are those people. I mean, compared to the world, I don't, I don't care what your level of income, you are one of those who are rich in this world. You shouldn't be prideful. You shouldn't put your hope in the things that you possess. Remember, things are not in and of themselves important. They are so uncertain. They come, they go. But rather put your hope not in the gift, but in the giver. Put your hope in God, who richly, it's interesting he provides this word, who richly gives, who richly provides. He's generous, us, with everything, you know, so that we might have joy in life and confidence in eternal life. And then he says it again, command. So again, I apologize to you. I'm just going to urge you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask for your consideration. But he says, I should be saying, this is not optional for you. And it's because he cares. What would you ever command your children to do? Only those things that you fear for their life if they don't do. It would not be optional. You would demand certain things. Uh, only very few things would you command your kids to do. He says, command them. To do good. To be rich in good deeds. Command them to be generous and willing to share. And then he gets into the why. Why would he make it so emphatic? In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. For our eternal hopes. So that they may also take hold until that day of life. That is truly life because he wants you to be rich and enjoy life that is truly life. Now, it isn't rocket science. A first-year seminary student could preach this scripture because it's just so fundamentally simple. Here's what he says in a nutshell. God commands us not to be arrogant, not to be proud. Now, I, I know that you've achieved things through sacrifice and hard work and education and um, you know, extra hours and all of that, but uh, even by the sweat of your brow and by the strength of your back. But when you stop and think back on it, I mean, God has given me some success in life, but he put the right people in my life. It wasn't my doing. He gave me a certain intellect. It wasn't my doing. He provided opportunities for me that wasn't really up to me. And even if I have physical strength, it's something that he gave me. So I can't be too proud about that. God enabled those things for me. He even enabled me to be born in this country. Uh, not to put your hope in things. Things come and go. They in and of themselves are of no importance. But rather put your hope in God, the giver and not the gift. You know, he's the constant thing, not the things that come and go. And you should be rich in good deeds. You should be generous and eager to share. Pretty simple. Doesn't need a lot of explanation. And then it gets into the why of it. Two reasons that these should be priorities in our life. So that you could keep your values squared away throughout your life. Because let's face it, vision and values and faith leaks away. You can say, well, I already know about the Lord. I know what he's done for me in Christ Jesus. And I know that I'm forgiven. And I know that I'm headed for heaven, not because of what I've done, but because of what he's done for me. Um, but if you quit attending to that, if you quit placing yourself under the word of God, that faith will become weaker and weaker. And the messages from the world that are contrary to that faith or who teach other values will begin to dominate your life. And the value of your faith will weaken and perhaps even ultimately put your eternal hope 
in jeopardy. So do these things. Don't only believe these things so that you can keep your faith squared away. And, and you can be confident tomorrow like you are today that heaven is your ultimate home. And then secondly, he doesn't just care about eternal life. You, you don't just hold faith so that you can go to heaven when you die. You hold faith because there's value for it now as a child, as a teenager. There's value for it now uh, in the midst of all of your struggle so that you can have what really matters. You know, the contentment and the richness of life that he desires. Now, I'm going to tell you that this is my entire sermon right here. I'm only going to spend, I'm not spending time on all the things he says for you to do. I'm only going to spend time on what is truly life. Because I I think this passes uh, our perception a lot. What constitutes true life? Let's just look at that for a moment. Life that is truly life realizes that generosity is not an outcome of blessings. We don't become generous because we've been blessed. It's not an outcome of blessings. Blessings are an outcome of a generous spirit. I call it Christian karma. Now, I know that karma is a Hindu term, and and, uh, before you write letters and say, where are you doing teaching Hindu thought uh, in a Christian church, uh, the Hindus stole that from God. You know, (laughs) believe that. You know, there, there is truth that has been eternal and other people who have created other religions have borrowed from the truth of God. And, and karma is a truth that is taught in the Bible. You know, what goes around comes around. You know, if you do good, it'll come back to you. In fact, you need go no further than uh, Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 11 when he says, cast your bread upon the waters and after many days it will return to you. You know, give without thought. Be generous without consideration. Uh, Jesus said, what good is it if you're kind to others who are going to be kind back to you? You know, that, that's not really an expression of faith. You know, be kind even to your enemies. And he, he says, if you practice this attitude in life, guess what? Uh, even though the poor can't return to you, I can return to you uh, greater blessings than you've known before or that you could ever get from your own personal investment or your own wisdom. You know, there is this concept that God cares about our attitude. And when he sees a useful vessel, just like you have a useful tool in your toolbox or a useful measuring cup in your kitchen, you know, you're going to go there because you know it works. It feels comfortable to you and it accomplishes your purpose. And that idea of Christian karma is found in the Bible. Not just in the Old Testament, even Jesus said it in Luke chapter 6. He said these words, He said, give, and it will be given to you. This is so hard for us to grasp because it's counterintuitive. You think giving depletes you, it does not deplete you. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together. It's like, you know, when you pour something into a basket or you pour something into a jar, you know, if you shake it or pound it, you see it settle, and you can get more in it. That's the kind of blessing he's talking about coming back to you. Shaken together, running over poured into even your lap for the measure you use Jesus' words will be measured back to you you know our attitudes in life have consequence and how we behave towards others and how we live our life bears fruit and it does bring back a good return for the investment. And, and who couldn't have a better attitude than us to place our hope in the giver and not the gift? 
because we know what God has done for us. We know the extent of his love for us that he gave. In fact, I love this scripture uh, from uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 9 this, that speaks after 8 and 9, speaks all about giving. God loves a cheerful giver, all that stuff. You know, be generous in your sowing of seed and you'll have a rich harvest. On and on and on, two chapters worth of talk about giving. And then it says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. You know, don't forget where it comes from. Don't forget that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation, no prejudice, no shifting shadow he gives to all. You know, so uh, we especially should have this attitude because we know where it comes from and we know that God provides no matter our worth or lack thereof. Now, a life that is truly life uh, doesn't necessarily come from your mom and dad. My personal past was based on an attitude of scarcity, not generosity. I didn't learn this at home. You know, I, I didn't learn to be generous because my mom and dad were generous. They were wonderful people. Don't get me wrong. I love them. I wouldn't change uh, my family of origin for nothing. You know, they taught me faith. And they made sure that I got to church in Sunday school. And, and I watched them pray. And I watched my dad humble himself in church. My dad was a World War II vet. He was... He was kind of a man's man, kind of an Archie Bunker guy for those who remember that show. You know, he was just plain spoken. He was sometimes prejudiced and sometimes, uh, you know, inappropriate. But, uh, you know, in church, I, I saw that that meant something to him and had a year to spend with him before he died because of his diagnosis. And we had the opportunity to talk about deep things we wouldn't have talked about. But they were not generous people. They were people of scarcity and, and not generosity. They were children of the Great Depression. And I think that influenced how they thought about things. And they, were, they lived through the depravity and the violence and the sacrifices that World War II required. And then they raised seven children on a factory worker's salary. Uh, their world was, was small. They focused probably on what they lacked more than what they had. And, and as I grew, I could see that more. You know, when you're young, you just think your parents are the world and everything that they believe and hold to be true is right. And later you become a little more objective about that. And I, and I kind of feel sorry that that was their approach to life. And in fact, it reminds me, every time I read this scripture from Numbers chapter 13, it kind of reminds me of my folks. This is a description of the 10 spies that came back from investigating the promised land. Now, let me take you back to the Old Testament. God brought Israel out of Egypt, the most powerful nation in all the world. And because of the 10 plagues, Pharaoh finally said to Moses, take your people and get out of here. And, and through those miracles, God rescued them. They were slaves. They had no power. They didn't revolt. God rescued them from a mighty hand. And then he opened the waters of the Red Sea and they passed on dry land. And then he provided manna in the wilderness and quail and water where there was none. After all those experiences, you would think, God is with us. We can do anything. But when they got to the land where he was sending them, they went up to spy it out, to, to lay a plan and a strategy. Now these were warriors that went up. These were the strong people that went up to spy it out. And all but two of them came back and said, we felt like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and so we looked the same to them. We thought of ourselves as weak. We thought of ourselves as small. We thought of ourselves as insignificant, and so we were. They smelted on us. They had no fear of us, and we had great fear of them. 
because they look to their own resources and not to what God could do for them. You know, I think about that passage. If you think of yourself that way, that will become your reality. No matter where you go, there you are. But that wasn't the end of of my training. And uh, if you were raised in a family that didn't teach you this, that's okay. There's still time for you as there was for me. As a young man, I was exposed to Carol's daddy. Now, he was a World War II guy too. He was also a son of the Great Depression. And uh, they were modest people, you know. Their home would fit in probably most of our three-car garages. You know, it was a very small home. They lived within their means, and uh, God blessed them, and they had an attitude of generosity towards their church, towards other people. Uh, they lived this life, and, and he taught me uh, that this is the key to life that is truly life. And then I had a mentor pastor when I was an intern. And, uh, you know, I came from a small town and a small church, and I went to a big town, I went to a big church, and it just kind of blew me away. And uh, I was exposed for an entire year to a pastor who had a big vision, who believed in what God could do, not what he could do, not what the people could do, but what God could do through people. And, th- and then I've, I've had other people in my life who've taught me also and encouraged me, and I've also had the experience of seeing what generosity can do. When you're, when you're generous, you know, Christian karma does come into play, and generosity comes back to you. I had a friend I used to say to him, so how are you today? He'd say, every day's a holiday and every meal's a banquet. <laughs> it was just his attitude, and, and it was true for him. You could just see it. You know, he rose above every circumstance because he took this attitude towards life. So it may not be a part of your history, but you don't have to be bound by your past. The secret power of generosity has nothing to do with wealth. It has nothing to do with poverty. I think most believe that the more affluent you become, the more generous you will be. The more affluent you become, the more generous you can be and the more generous you will be. But that is not true. The most generous people in the world have always been and always will be, uh, not necessarily the affluent. Now, they can give large gifts because they have lots to give, but it's not sacrificial giving typically. In fact, Patricia Greenfeld tracked families from uh, Chiapa, Mexico. Uh, It was actually in an NPR article, uh, well, uh, a newscast. I, I heard this on the radio. Uh, I don't often listen to NPR. They have kind of a different view of the world than I do. But I like talk radio. And and if they're talking about something interesting, I'll listen to them, even if they don't agree with my point of view, because I'm interested also in learning what other people think about things. In their program, All Things Considered, which is part of their regular programming, they had a, a program called A Conversation About Unseen Patterns of Life. And in that program, a lady named Patricia Greenfeld tracked families from Chiapa, Mexico, a village in Mexico, for four decades. I can't imagine giving your life's work to tracking families in a village in Mexico, but that's what she did. She said many of them started poor, but over time they acquired greater wealth. And she said as the people she followed grew richer, they became more individualistic and their community ties frayed and weakened. You know, they didn't care for others as much and they didn't care what others thought of them as much. And then the article from NPR went on to say that UCLA has done a study that confirms this is not just true for villages in Mexico, but it's true in the United States as well. In just about every way we can study it, 
lower class individuals volunteer more, give more of their resources, and are more generous. So this idea that if you're more affluent, you'll become more generous is just false. Uh, Even from a psychologist, a sociological point of view, it doesn't work out that way. And then uh, Patricia, to her own humble credit, said, I have experienced it personally. I feel it in myself. I see it happen to me. That somehow when I'm thinking hard about making money and increasing my wealth and enjoying my material blessings that I've worked so hard for, I notice I'm not as responsive to other people's needs. So, you know, as we rise in wealth, we increase also in individuality, in self-expression, in autonomy, and, and also in loneliness. You know, as we isolate ourselves, as we take care of only ourselves, it isn't life that is life indeed. It isn't the kind of full and rich life that, that you wish you could have. And if you don't believe that, just come to uh, some funerals uh, for impoverished people and see the joy in their life and then come to some more affluent funerals and see the formality of it and, and sometimes the lack of emotional connection that you will see in those places. But she did add that this isn't necessarily a sentence against becoming affluent. She said increased wealth does not inevitably mean these things. But it probably does mean that the bonds of connection that come so easily to us when we have so little need to be carefully and deliberately cultivated as we increase in our affluence. Most believe that as we become more affluent, we will become more generous. And we we set that as our goal. Well, someday I'll be able to do that. No, you won't. It doesn't work that way. It happens now. Generosity is an attitude we need to practice now. We're in a process called Next. Next provides, I think, a great opportunity to test this theory of God, this Christian karma sense that we should trust the giver and not the gift. In fact, God encourages us. I have a friend who calls this Malachi because he's Italian, but it's actually Malachi. Uh, Malachi 3 verse 10 God says, test me, try it out. In fact, I had a friend who was at my sermon study. He's a lay guy, but he comes to our sermon study every week, Tuesday morning. And he said, I practice this. You know, when I find myself, you know, down in the dumps there, I find myself, and I sense that I'm becoming less generous and more selfish. I just say, I'm going to give two weeks of generosity, you know, just to kind of get back on track. He says, I become more generous in my driving. I say, come on, come on out. And, you know, let them in ahead of me. I become more generous in my compliments to my colleagues at work. I become more generous in my expression of kindness and love and affirmation to my children. And he says, it changes me. It doesn't just change my relationships. So God says, test me, try it. He says, test me in this, this theory of generosity, says the Lord Almighty. I think that's an interesting title, the one who can make a difference. And see if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing, you will struggle to handle it. Next is not just about what the church is doing. It it should be what you're doing. What's next in your life? And um, as the church encourages corporate generosity, and Jeff's going to come out and talk about that in a minute, uh, I think you should also think about the generosity in your life and where you are and where you want to be because it will change your perspective on life. And when you change your perspective, you change your reality. 
Next is not just a capital campaign. Somebody asked me after service last night, if we just knew the specifics of what we're doing, I I cannot begin to explain the specifics of what we're doing because next isn't just a capital campaign that we're going to add this or we're going to build this. It's about all of our ministry for two years. You know, Friday night I got a phone call and there was a young lady, 27 years old, who was lying near death. And grandpa called me from Oklahoma. He was busting to get back. And so would I go visit their family? And, and so I went over there and had scripture and prayer with that family. She died like an hour or two after I left. Next is about that. It's, a, it's about having staff that can respond to people in times of need. It's about divorce recovery. It, it, it's, it's about uh, people who are feeling loss, uh, grief share uh, because of death. It, it's about our Christian school. It's about our children's ministry. It's about our student ministry. It's about the broadcast ministry that you heard. It's all of our ministry. We haven't separated out just the capital campaign. Next is a two-year commitment. You know, for all of the ministry that we do, there will be some projects we pray if the money is there because we're not going to be irresponsible about gifts. If the money is there, there's some improvements and there's some changes that we want to make to make our facilities more welcoming. But it's all of our ministry for the next two years. What can you do to express generosity towards your church so that your church can be all that it needs to be? And, and if I say, why should you do it? It goes back to the text. This text said, here's why. So that you keep it square in your life about what is truly faith. And, and, and you realize that I'm not going to get too materialistic. I'm not going to get too tied to things that come and go. I'm going to make my value, my faith that leads ultimately home to heaven. And secondly, because I want to take hold of that which really makes life rich. And it's not slowpoke candy bars that are no longer made. You know, it's, it's not ramblers in your driveway. You know, it's things that are truly life, things that truly matter that cause you to have a full and rich life.